0: We come now to our sermon passage this morning, and we'll be looking at uh, John 12, and then an excerpt from John 19, a little bit later in the same book. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet Him, shouting, "'Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel!' Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed the sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Father, thank you for your word that in it we see who you are because you've revealed it to us and we see who we are in you. So I pray in in these moments as we stare into the treasures of your word that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would trust in him, that you would make us by your spirit more like him. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All political lives end in failure. All political lives end in failure. Those words were originally written by a man named Enoch Powell. He was a politician (laughs) in England in the 20th century and an author. All political lives end in failure. What he meant was this. If you look across human history, you'll see so many great people that rise up as leaders. And they've got big ideas. They've got big ideas for what they want to do in the world. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. But they all have dreams for where they want to lead the people that they're leading. But if you look through human history, all of those political lives, all of those leaders, their stories end in failure. When they get power, they can't do what they want. Maybe they made promises on their way to, you know, on the campaign trail in our world that they don't intend to keep. Or they made promises that they don't actually have power to put into place. Even the ones that do grab power and seem to do great things, they face opposition while they're in there. And all the stories end ultimately in frustration or even death. Because leading is hard. If you don't believe me, one of, my, one of the most jarring things, uh, Google this when you get home. Um, look up pictures of U.S. presidents the day they take office and a picture of the U.S. president the day they leave office. Those four years or those eight years age these people decades. Decades. And when they leave office, you will never, very rarely, find a president that feels like, I did everything I wanted to do. All political lives end in failure. In John 12, I bring all that up because in our passage in John 12, and then this passage from John 19, it looks exactly like that's what happens to Jesus. In John 12, he arrives into Jerusalem, and as you can see, this great crowd is there, and they celebrate him as king. And there were probably millions of people there. Just a couple of decades later, the historian Josephus talks about a Passover, and he estimates that there's three million people in or around the city at the time of the Passover. So think about that many people are in Jerusalem, and Jesus is arriving, and they are cheering. They're so excited, they're ripping branches off of trees to wave them in the air. They're shouting out Scripture and singing songs. That's a Sunday. Four days later, on Thursday night, John 19, the exact same crowd is demanding that Pilate who's essentially the, the, the mayor of the area, installed by the Romans, they're demanding that Jesus be put to death as a rebel, as a criminal. Four days, four days later, and he experiences the degrading execution of crucifixion, and he's literally tossed aside into a hole, a tomb. And he looks like another failed revolutionary, another failed political life, failure. Jesus has come as king, but he's rejected. In fact, maybe the most dramatic moment in the Gospel of John is when Pilate cries out, Shall I crucify your king? And the people say, We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. All political lives end in failure. But I'm asking you this morning, was it really failure? Did Jesus fail... As king? That's the question for us this morning on a Palm Sunday. Did Jesus fail as king? And if you want the short answer, if you're going to like zone out, that's fine. The answer is no, he (laughs) did it. But we'll walk through uh, our passage a little bit to talk about how Jesus shows himself as a king, fundamentally different than the kings of this world, and how our king, Jesus, succeeds in his plans and in his goals. So we're going to break this up into a couple of different sections. The first one is this, a perfect storm, a perfect storm. So Jesus arrives into Jerusalem, and as we see, there's two very, very different reactions to him you know, riding down the road into the city. The first one's the reaction of the crowd, which we've already talked about. They're so excited. And the second is the reaction of the religious leaders, who are profoundly distressed. So the crowd is ecstatic. The leaders are distressed and very bothered. Now, why? And they're so distressed, we, we can look back in, in John's Gospel. At this point, they are already plotting to take Jesus' life. They've already opposed him. They've tried to undermine him and John. They've tried to mock him with questions and trip him up, and it's not worked. And so now they're planning to take his life. Why? Why such dramatic reaction to a man riding a donkey into Jerusalem? Well, I think it would help us to know a little bit of history before, before Jesus came on the scene. About 150 years before the time of Jesus, an army was gathered in Israel and they won political independence. Think American revolutionary kind of thing. It was guided by one family, the Maccabees. And what they did is they took up the symbol of a palm tree. That was their big symbol, the symbol of a palm tree. They raised an army, and they threw out the Seleucid Empire. And at the time they did this, the Israelites had been ruled over in one way or another by a succession of empires for hundreds of years. And so this group raised up, and they threw the Seleucids out, and they established their own king, and they won independence. It's about 150 years before the time of Jesus. And for a century, this independent Israelite kingdom ruled themselves until they were conquered by the Romans. They were conquered by the Romans who took control of the area. They installed their own leaders. And by the time we get to John chapter 12 where Jesus is marching into Jerusalem, that reality of the Israelites who had had their independent kingdom but are now being ruled over by the Romans, it had been true for generations, like four generations And this was a reality that some people accepted and worked within. That's what the leaders did. They figured out, well, we can't do anything about this, so we're going to elbow out our own little room within this and work within it. That's what the leaders did, and that's why they were so nervous about Jesus. But there were a lot of people that did not accept it. They were furious. And from time to time, you can look back in in the first century, um, on either side of Jesus' life, from time to time, there would be revolutionaries that would rise up. They'd start a movement and they'd build an army and they'd try to toss the Romans out and they'd get squashed every single time. Every single time. Now, of course, that kind of attention of the rebel with an army is the last thing the leaders want. The leaders had dug out their own place. They had their own power. They had figured out how to work within the system and keep the Romans happy and still keep their control of stuff. And so when Jesus is showing up and suddenly millions of people seemingly are cheering that he's here, here's our king, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the leaders are like, this has to end now. <laughs> this has to stop before Caesar hears about this and sends an army. They thought that if Jesus kept healing sick people and he kept teaching if he kept talking about this upside-down kingdom where the poor are honored and seen, if he kept seeing women and looking them in the eyes, women who in this society were not even allowed to testify in court, if he kept doing these things that, well, I'll quote them, their own words from John chapter 11, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. That's the backdrop of this moment when Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem. The excitement of the crowd that someone is here that's possibly going to free us from the Roman rule and the leader's fear of the Romans' power coming to bear on Jerusalem. This is the perfect storm. It is the absolute perfect storm that Jesus is walking directly into. And it's clear, something has to give. Something has to give. It can't keep going this way. And that brings me to my second section, the King arrives. It's not that Jesus didn't know this. It's not that Jesus accidentally wound up riding into Jerusalem on a donkey on that specific day with that crowd there. He knew all this background. He knew the expectations and he knew the fears at play. If we read through John, we'll see that Jesus has a remarkable insight on people's motivations. And over and over again, he had refused to give himself over to those expectations. We see him responding to the expectations of his family, his mom in John chapter 2, his brothers in John chapter 7. He refuses to give in to their expectations of who he ought to be. We see him refusing to give in to the expectations of powerful people. John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to him in the night and he's trying to make a negotiation, kind of figure out this new upstart. Jesus refuses to give Himself in to Nicodemus. We see it in John chapter 6. Jesus has fed this crowd of thousands with fish and bread, and they are ready, in the words of John 6, to crown Him as their king. Jesus refuses to give Himself over to them. He understands expectations, and He refuses to be pinned down by those expectations. He refuses to become a tool for other people's plans. But here in John chapter 12, it might seem a little bit like Jesus has finally decided to kind of give in to those expectations. After all, he's marching into Jerusalem at Passover in the sight of everybody. And the crowd's beyond excited. They cry out, Hosanna, which is like a big "woohoo." It means something like God saves or God save us. You can't even figure out exactly what, the, what it means, the word. But it's kind of like our... Woohoo or hazard! I don't know if anybody actually says huzzah. Um, but that, that's what it means. They're so excited. It's a scene of profound celebration. And like I said earlier, they rip palm trees down and they're waving them. Remember, that palm tree had been the emblem of the Maccabean army 150 years ago. It was a sign like a, an American eagle or a British lion. Like this was a symbol endued with such meaning. And they are celebrating because here is one that's going to deliver us from the Romans, which is what they think their biggest problem is. So it looks kind of like Jesus is leaning in on these expectations. But if we dig a little deeper, we'll see that what actually Jesus was doing was undermining these expectations. He's undermining the idea of him riding into Jerusalem as a warrior king. Here's what I mean. Notice what he rides. Notice what he rides. Not a war horse. Jesus doesn't show up in a chariot. He rides a donkey. And not just a donkey, a young donkey. A young donkey. This cannot be less impressive. If you're thinking of how it will look, and all politicians think about image... Right? Optics. They're thinking about what tie they're going to wear and how they're going to walk in and where they're going to walk in, where they're going to stand, how they're going to move their arms around when they talk. They're thinking about optics all the time. The first century, if you're thinking, I'm riding in and I'm going to show everybody I'm king, you don't grab a donkey. You don't. You get the biggest, tallest, most impressive horse you can, and you ride in maybe with armor on, maybe with a sword in your hand, But to arrive on the back of a donkey, it's an act of peace. It's an act of peace. It's not a king that is in fear for their life or thinks that they need to prove anything to anybody. It's an act of peace. This actually points back to a significant moment in the Old Testament. You can read about it in 1 Kings, and if you want drama and intrigue, read 1 and 2 Kings. (laughs) It's filled with it. But what this points back to is the very end of King David's life. So King David had ruled for 40 years. It had been mostly a good reign, but he had some significant flaws. But at the end of his life, he's identified his heir, the one who's going to be king after him, king over Israel, and he identifies his son, Solomon. Solomon's going to be his heir, and not just in a political sense. Solomon is going to be the heir of the promises that God had made to David. See, in 2 Samuel 7, God made an incredible promise to David that through one of David's descendants, that God was going to bring peace and grace to his people. In other words, that God was doing something bigger than just setting up a a physical kingdom. That through David's uh, line, God was going to fulfill his intentions to overcome the power of sin. And Solomon has been identified as the heir of that promise. The one who will carry that flame in this dark world. But near the end of David's life, another one of his sons, a man named Adonijah, he tries to steal the throne. So David is literally on his deathbed. And Adonijah, he forms this secret coalition with political and religious leaders. And he says, I'm going to have myself crowned king. And great power and authority. And so what Adonijah does, he gets chariots. And he gets great horses. And he gets an armed guard of 50 of the best warriors in Israel. And his plan is, I'm going to march into the capital city, Jerusalem. And I'm going to show everybody just by how I'm decked out, I'm the true king. And I'm going to walk in and I'm going to take my father's throne. Adonijah was planning to wow everybody into thinking, like, yeah, that's my king. So when David finds out about this, he tells Solomon to do something dramatic. Not to raise up a different army, not to get a bigger chariot and a bigger horse and 51 armed men to walk with him. He tells Solomon to go find my donkey, David's own donkey thing he rode through the streets every day when he would go around. Go find my donkey and ride on a route that's going to be noticed by the people in the city and you will be crowned king. All before Adonijah can arrive with his impressive display. And in the full view of everybody, that's exactly what Solomon does. He rides in on a donkey, not armed, not in force, to show that he's the rightful king and he doesn't have to grab for it with, with swords. Here in John chapter 12, Jesus rides a donkey as well. And what he's doing is he's hearkening back to that moment. He is showing that he is arriving not in fear, that he is not grasping for a throne that does not truly belong to him, but he's riding in on a donkey to show that he is the rightful king of God's kingdom. And he is here to face off against an enemy much deeper than just the Romans He's here to face off against the sin, the spiritual darkness, the marring that impacts every part of our world. And that brings me to my last section, the path of the true king. Where this heads next is a, wh- a whirlwind of a few days. The pathway of Jesus, the true king, does not lead to a palace. It does not lead to him being crowned. Well, it does, a crown of thorns, as thorns. He's not crowned, though, as the kind of king that the people want. It leads to him being rejected, not just by leaders afraid of losing their power, but by the very crowd who is declaring his praises right here. See, the excitement of Palm Sunday turns into the disappointment uh, of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday when Jesus does not turn out to be the kind of king they want. They wanted a king that was going to show up and tell them that they were right, a king that would hate all the people they hated. A king that was going to walk in and say, I hate the Romans too. They wanted a king, not, uh, not a king that would inconvenience them. We want a king who won't inconvenience us. We want a king who will not call us to a greater and deeper love of God and neighbor. And so the excitement of Sunday turns into the betrayal and the arrest of Thursday, the crucifixion of Friday. And it's shocking. Think about it. It's shocking. It's shocking to me. And it was probably shocking to the crowd. There were probably more than a few of them that were saying, crucify Him on Thursday, thinking like, man, that happened fast. It was shocking to the disciples. That's why they scattered. But you know who it wasn't shocking to? It was not shocking to Jesus. It was not shocking to Jesus at all. Marvel of all marvels, Jesus knew exactly where this road was taking him. He knew exactly what it would mean to be the kind of king that his people needed him to be. He knew he was going to have to face something much bigger than the injustice of religious and political authorities drunk on their own power. He knew he was going to face something much bigger and painful than even the excruciating physical death he would experience on the cross. He knew that he was going to be abandoned. He knew he was going to be mocked and shamed and spit upon. He knew he was going to be condemned and left and killed. And he knew he was going to experience the absolute hell of God's judgment against sin. He knew that his death on the cross would in a sense be a spiritual death of facing the wrath of God against sin. It's a mystery we cannot fathom. But Jesus knew that this is exactly where this road was taking him, and he took it all the same. Why? Because of his love for us. Because he is showing us the true king, not the false kings, not the all political lives end in failure kings. The true king. He offered himself willingly as king, not the kind of king king uh, not the kind of king Adonijah wanted to be. which is the kind of king we would want, someone decked out in physical power and impressive strength, not even the kind of King Solomon wound up being, in wealth and admiration due to his wisdom, but the kind of king that gives everything he has for the good of his people. That's the great love that our King Jesus has for us, because we know in our heart of hearts that we are no better than the crowd that day. We are not. If we're honest, we want Jesus so often to just confirm the stuff we like. We want a Jesus that will not inconvenience us. We want a distant king who will give us good things and hate all the people we hate. We don't want a king that abides with us. We don't want a king that leads us into the difficulties of loving sacrificially. We just want a king to confirm everything we already want. We want a Jesus of our expectations who's going to do our bidding. We don't want the Jesus of reality. But friends, the Jesus of our expectations has nothing for us because he does not exist. The Jesus of our expectations has nothing for us because he does not exist. The Jesus of our expectations cannot save us. He cannot guide us. He cannot do a thing for us. But the real Jesus, the Jesus who arrived on the back of a donkey, the Jesus who faced his cross, the Jesus who rose from the dead, the Jesus who gives us his Holy Spirit to awaken us to life out of our death, that real King Jesus, he has grace that will run to the deepest and most difficult parts of our hearts to bring us new life. He has a grace that will chase us in our mess and who will join us in our mess to lift us up out of it. Because here is King Jesus, not only crucified on Friday, but as we'll celebrate next week, victorious over all that stands between Him and His love for us. A Jesus who defeats all of his enemies and all of the true enemies of our hearts. The king who exposes the false powers of this world and the false idols that we chase for identity and gives us hope that will last. And so this Palm Sunday, this Palm Sunday, toss aside the Jesus of your expectations. He has nothing at all for you. And see the glory and the beauty and the power of the God who runs after you, who in the words of Psalm 23, chases after you with goodness and mercy, who will not be dissuaded, who will not stop from removing absolutely every barrier that stands between you receiving all the grace He has for you. And that pathway may be tough sometimes, God giving us the grace that we desperately need will mean Him bending our hearts off the idols that we've set our hearts on. And that'll be hard at times. That'll be hard at times. But receive our King Jesus. Because He will not let you go. He has a love that will never leave you. And as we saw in Romans chapter 8, and we read earlier, If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you save us from sin. Thank you that you save us from our own sin expectations our hearts are darkened we don't know what we want we thank you that you're a king who doesn't just confirm what we want you to confirm who doesn't just hate what we want you to hate who doesn't uh, just stand at a distance and give us good things but you're a king that chases after us to find us in our darkness to join us to you that we might be lifted up i pray that you would move upon our hearts lord that we would be continuously in awe of you as our King. That we would be attentive to your love. To know that at any moment, the most significant thing about us and the most significant thing about any situation or decision we're making or whatever it may be, is that we are yours. Apply the truth of this passage that we've looked at today to our hearts that we may love you all the more. all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.